You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Moritz Siebert and I, Nils Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your journey into this part of the financial world. And if you're newer to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed. Like last week's episode with Rob Carver that certainly got us into some pretty deep discussions among the three of us. First off though, Moritz, how are you? Good morning, or good afternoon actually. Good morning, good afternoon. It's about noon. Good noon, it's about noon here in Munich. Uh, Freezing point, but I'm doing well. Definitely winter is on our doorsteps. And um, how are you? Yes, same here. Uh, it's a great day here in Switzerland, at least where I am. So, um, yeah, nice to be indoor recording a podcast with you. <laughs> <laughs> now, in terms of a market wrap, of course, it was not surprising that it was a quiet week. We had the uh, US holidays, of course, but a holiday that was celebrated by the Dow Jones climbing above 30,000 for the first time ever. I also noticed in terms of other interesting news that Peru launched a billion dollars worth of a 101-year bond at about three and a quarter percent, which is the lowest yield for an emerging market century bond yet. And of course, for some of those who really know their long, ultra-long bond history, you will know that back in 2017, Austria, our neighbor country here, issued a 100-year bond at 2.1% coupon. And actually that has, because the interest rates keep going lower, has gone up to a price of 226 cents, which is extraordinary, and a yield to maturity of about uh, less than half a percent. So um, yeah, interesting stuff happening in that part of the um, financial world. Now, back to more familiar shores. We did see gold breaking through some interesting levels this week. It's now off about 15% from its uh, peak this summer, where a lot of people were calling for gold to scream higher in terms of price. And of course, I'm sure we will get into a little bit of discussion about the moves in things like Bitcoin this week, which had a massive have, well, it's had a massive uptrend, but it also had a decent pullback the last 24, 36 hours as well. So with all of that, Moritz, how how was your week? Another positive week, even though there have been, like you say, some very interesting price movements in a variety of markets. Well, I'm you know up 11 basis points, so it's a positive week, but it's only very mildly positive. And... Um, I'm about 2% up for the month, still down close to 4% for the year. This is what it is. I'm really hoping that, you know, December will be a turnaround December for me. Maybe I can, you know, make the cut and scratch the zero for the year. That would be great. But who knows? We'll see. The notable winning positions that I spotted for the past week, I'm still, and well, still, I'm, I'm long the emissions contract. That's European unit emissions, so carbon emissions, since uh, quite a long time, and and emissions have started to move higher again, so I made good money from that position. And um, the notable losing positions were, well, I'm short crude, still short crude, pretty much all of that year, I'm short crude. And WTI just uh, behaves very strongly these past couple of days. I think it's trading around 45 now on the on the January contract. I'm short that contract, so that didn't help. And then, of course, I do have a long Bitcoin position, which has been so enjoyable, of course, in the past couple of weeks and uh, came a bit to a stop on uh, Thanksgiving Thursday and then also on Friday. So it has been the largest losing position in my portfolio and all the other markets, really not much. The, the bonds didn't move that much. I, I didn't see a lot of action there. Didn't see a lot of action from the currencies, to be honest. So um, pretty behaved. Yeah. 
gold. You've mentioned gold. Sure. Gold had two interesting shots lower, right? Yeah. Really, really fast. One was yesterday, I think, you know, from about 1800 to 1760 or something like that. And then the one before was on, um, I don't remember, maybe Wednesday or Tuesday, something like that, when it broke through the 1800 level. And um, I'm long gold, so uh, that one wasn't great. No, I don't know. I, I, I initially thought that maybe gold was just being sold off as as people were buying more Bitcoin. I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe not. But there are some definitely some uh, very different opinions about gold. I've seen some people uh, being quite bearish on gold in a bigger picture. And of course, we know a lot of people who are very bullish on gold in a bigger picture because we've had some of them on our global macro miniseries. So it'll be interesting to see now that gold has certainly broken through that low it made recently. We'll see how much more uh, space it will get to the downside. And of course, it's not just gold. Uh, silver is certainly a close cousin in this race. So there's some interesting stuff going on. I mean, on our side, like you, we actually, instead of having a small up, day, up week, we had a small down week for our trend following system, but still only a few basis points. A little bit up for the month, but still down for the year. So um, pretty similar picture. For us this week, energy is just like you. I mean, absolutely the worst performing sector by a long shot. Still on the short side in 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 that particular sector. So um, yeah, we we certainly suffer when things are so strong. I think the energies in general are up like seven, eight, nine percent for the week. So pretty strong. On the other hand, to make up for all of that, we did make money in equities and currencies and grains. So. That's why the week actually ended up being pretty even. Our volatility strategy, of course, the S&P were up for the week. And actually, the VIX index reached the lowest level since the beginning of COVID-19 back in March. Now, the term structure is partly reflecting this new calm in terms of the shorter dated end of the curve. It looks pretty fairly normally priced with December and January being priced uh, in contango at the moment. But the longer dated VIX futures display kind of slightly unusual flat shape with virtually no difference between February 21 and June 21 futures. And at least historically or theoretically, there has been some, and I guess there should be some premium for providing liquidity to the longer dates. So, so we'll see what that all means. All in all, our volatility strategy gained a little bit during the week, uh, up okay for the month, up very strong for the year. So it's continued to be an interesting area in terms of uh, market action, I guess. Now, Moritz, we do have some great questions coming in from Gene, Werner, Terence, and Sebastian. The first one, though, came in as a voicemail from Gene, New Zealand, a little bit a while ago, actually, I have to really apologize. It must have gone into my junk folder for some reason. So um, we're going to now play the question from Gene, and then uh, you and I can have a little bit of a conversation. Let's hear what Gene had to ask us. Hi, this is Gene from New Zealand. I'm developing a trend-following model using simple moving average crossovers and I'm tuning the parameters of the model using machine learning against a historical data set. My question is, should you remove periods of the historical data set to make the data more representative of either the wider historical data that you might not be able to get your hands on or maybe more representative of the likely future events? Obviously, we're not in the game of predicting the future environments here in trend following, but it might be obvious that the 20, 40 or 60 year data set that you've got underrepresents or overrepresents certain secular trends, or the data set you've got might have one boom and two recessions just because of the coincidence of when the data was first gathered. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this compromise. Okay, so essentially it's a question about historical data when developing uh, trading systems. And um, I think what what Gene is asking is whether it's 
okay to kind of ignore some of the historical data if you if you don't think it represents what the environment is at the moment what what are your thoughts on on this well my thoughts is i i, I can only um let you know shane what it is that i'm doing i'm using all the data that i can get my hand on i think data is valuable it's kind of like the fuel that i need in order to do my research and um i'll just you know mention that many large trading firms out there ctas out there winton for example winton is addicted to data right they're they're trying to get as much data as they possibly can you know century old data everything they can get their hands on and um, the markets are the markets and the history of transactions is reflected in the time series of price data that you get and this is valuable information to me so i don't want to be dismissing any of the data, throwing it out of the window or not use it, only because I think that maybe what is happening today might be so different, or what will be happening in the future might be so different that it would never have been possible to, to see anything like that in the past. I, I, I don't do it that way. And also, I do not apply machine learning techniques, but that is probably just a a limitation on, on, my, on my end, whereas I simply do not understand those techniques well enough. I, I don't know exactly what they do, and I wouldn't know even how to use them and how to interpret the results. So I stay away from it. And uh, I've mentioned that before. I'm still waiting to see the live track records of the really successful, pure machine learning AI-driven funds You know that really kick the ball out of the park. And I haven't seen any yet. So... Um, Maybe they're under the radar and we don't see them because they don't show them to us and they're trading proprietary money, all of which may be true. But I have yet to see a public live track record of a machine learning or AI-driven fund with you know, substantial assets under management that has really kicked the ball out of the park so that they can say, here it is, I have the secret sauce and I'm doing something better than all of you guys who are not using AI techniques. So I think right now my skepticism is warranted and fair. I may be proven wrong, as I have been many, many times going forward. So, but I would just use all the data. I would not throw out certain episodes, or certain periods um, of the historical data set because you think they are no longer representative of today's environment. There is enough surprises in there in the historical data, and we will get surprises going forward. Of course, they're all a little bit different. COVID-19 is a different type of crisis, but it is a crisis nevertheless, right? So I don't want to remove the COVID crisis from the data when I do backtesting or research on my system, say in 2022, saying, well, this has been a once in a lifetime event. It's never going to be happening again. So therefore I'm removing the COVID event. I don't do it. So it's a matter of choice. Yeah, no, I think you touch on a, on a lot of interesting things. And, and Gene's question does actually raise a much bigger debate that I'd like to uh, thrash out a little bit today with you, Moritz. But the first thing that springs to mind is I think that's a great thing for Jack Swagger's next book, the machine learning market wizards. Right? Let's exactly. uh, let's let's have one of those. Come on up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyways, back to your question, Gene. I think what Gene is raising in terms of an issue is something that I think we all struggle with to some extent, and that is at the end of the day how do we pick parameters, right? Because there are so many different ways of doing it and there are so many different schools of thoughts in terms of what data should we use? Should we do walk forward and, and you know, should we feed it all the data and, and all of those things? And I think it's a really hard question to answer in terms of what's right and what's wrong. I think to some extent it comes down to your beliefs at the end of the day, um, what you think works best but it can only be an educated guess because we as as you said Moritz we we don't know what the future will hold so i i mean i'm in the school uh, of of your thoughts as well Moritz in terms of yeah i mean the history is the history we can't change that so we need to use it and 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 you say you want as much data as possible and i can i can I agree with that in, in many ways, right? But then I was also a little bit surprised when we had Perry Kaufman on a few weeks ago, and I suggest, Gene, you go back and listen to that episode, uh, because he was saying, well, one way of getting around this to some extent is to continuously select those markets that are doing the best in the quote-unquote current environment. 
So he would measure the performance of, of the various markets. He'd trade all markets equal, so same parameter sets, but he would choose the the markets that were doing the best on a rolling 60-day time frame. So on one hand, I can see that it makes some sense to say, yeah, if you have a market uh, and a parameter combination that are really in form because of the way the markets are, you should you should go with that. But on the other hand, you end up with the same problem, and that is you don't know just because it's been doing well for the last 60 days whether it's going to do well for the next 60 days. And I don't think we can get around that issue you know, whatsoever. So I lean towards the fact that you should take as much data as you, like you said, Morris, because at least you could say the model has to be able to cope with many different things and in many different environments. And it's never going to be the the best model, but it's going to be as robust as possible. Because I think what we all are striving for in our system design is robustness. The problem is robustness is really difficult to define. But I think for me, at least, robustness comes from having dealt through many different times of environments and and surprises and 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 all of that stuff and this is also why i have a very strong conviction when it comes to trend following because i really feel that trend following is one of those strategies that have proven with real trading because we can go back and find managers with long track records that they have survived a lot of these other strategies are relatively new we know a lot of money went into, say, risk parity, et cetera, et cetera. But that strategy wasn't really, didn't get known until 2003 when Bridgewater started doing it and allowing people getting into it. So we haven't seen that many crises and different market situations in the last 17 years compared to the to the last 50 years. And we know that there are managers with 50-year real track records. And of course, I work for one that has a 46-plus-year track record. So we know it works, and I think that is more important. So for me, robustness, even if it means that I don't have the quote-unquote best parameters, is more important because I don't think that you can find the best parameters for an unknown future anyways. Agreed. And I would have a problem to decide where to stop and where to end. What data do you exclude and what not? Where, where do you make the cut? What is crazy enough so that you could say, this is worthy of exclusion? And and this to me is impossible to answer because you, know, you may look at, say, the stock price of Tesla these days. Yesterday, it closed at 584, a new all-time high for the stock of Tesla. We all, you know, we all know what happened to the price of Tesla this year up massively, 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 right? Is this crazy yet yeah, to some people? I mean, there's many people out there, many voices out there that say this is completely over the top. This is massively overvalued. The company doesn't turn a profit. It is just, you know, Robinhood traders, momentum, whatever it is, you know, short gamma dealer hedging, yada, yada, yada. But still, those are transactions. Those transactions happen right now. They are executed or they're driven by human beings who may be using machines to do them. But it is reality. It's on the tape. Whether you think that's crazy or Tesla doesn't deserve that price, it doesn't matter. That's just your opinion. But the fact of the matter is, the very objective fact of the matter is, it has printed to the tape and Tesla is at 584 today, period. And I think, include that data point. It's there. Work with it. Yeah. And one thing we can say for sure, Moritz, and that is, those people who are trading Tesla using trend-following rules, they will be still long Tesla. Exactly. That's a fact. Certainly know of one person who's long Tesla. And um... and he will be on the show very shortly, right? So, 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 exactly. so this is the thing about trend-following and the strength of that when you see these quote-unquote unusual moves or crazy moves. But let me then, let me go and completely digress from this particular topic by making a a plug for an episode I'm going to release next week because I brought back one of the uh, guests that I had on back in 2015. And this guy predicted, because he's in the world of predictions, that Dow Jones was heading to 32,000. And so as we get closer to that, which of course back then sounded crazy, but now we're getting closer. Anyways, it's uh, a guy called Mahendra Sharma and he uh, he's going to be back and he writes every year 
a book with his predictions. He's obviously not using trend following, I can assure you that, because we don't predict. Nevertheless, it's really interesting. And by the way, just as a little cliffhanger, he has predictions about Tesla. He has predictions about Bitcoin. So uh, there's a lot of good stuff in that. But you have to be patient a few more days and go and check out that episode. It'll be different. But nevertheless, I think it was a really interesting conversation. So let's move on. I hope, Gene, that it was worth the wait, that you got a long answer about this. And by the way, I will suggest, because you should Twitter Moritz and me, and with your comments about a topic like what's the best thing to do about backtesting, selecting parameters, let's hear your opinion. We may not have the right answer, so let's have some more opinions about that. So do that on Twitter. Uh, I know Moritz in particular is very good to respond on that. I'm maybe not as good as, but I'll do my best. Now, the next question is from Werner. And uh, Werner says, Hi Nils, hi Moritz, still loving every episode and learning from you each week. I have finally decided that 20-day breakouts no longer work, as Jerry and Moritz have been saying for a long time. But I guess I had to learn the hard way. So I'm now only looking at medium-term 20 plus days breakouts. However, the number of signals under the longer term breakouts are reduced. What I find is that I wait patiently for a 35 day breakout, e.g. I go long at a price of 100 and then often see my stop getting hit at 95, only to see the market then continue in the original direction of the breakout. Only now I'm out of the trade. Now my question, should I then go back into the trade at the original 35-day breakout level and buy an, uh, you know, a price of 100 in this case of the trade that just got stopped out or should I reset and wait for the next 35-day high or low to put on a position? So thanks for the question, Werner. Let's hear what Mortz has to say. Do the trade for sure. Do the trade. If you do not do the trade, you cannot make the profit from that trade. You need to bank that into your system's rules, right? But you need to also come to terms with a situation such as you're taking a position and it hits your initial stop. You're out of that position. You're doing that again. It hits your initial stop. You're out of the position again. You do that five times in a row. Then you finally get that position. It moves your way and it it eats into your open trade equity and it maybe becomes a scratch or just a, a, a mild positive win. But you have to do these trades over and over and over again. And I know it's very difficult to pull the trigger every single time on a trade that has cost you money in the last couple of iterations that you traded that market. But yet you need to take that trade. It's very important because this one, you know, if, if you miss it and it goes to the moon, you know, this may be the trade that you really need. You just don't know that. Uh, so you must take all the trades. That's kind of like one of the Ten Commandments. The The system signals are there to be obeyed. They're not there to be questioned, second-guessed, or any of that, any of these things. So please take the trade. Yeah, completely agree on that point, uh, Vanna. What I will suggest, though, is that you might, and 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 obviously it depends on what your um, what software platforms or and skill set you have in, in in that sense but i do think it's worth doing a bit of testing right because you may you may just be putting your initial stop too close right i mean it could be that you find something and again i don't want you to over optimize because just picking like 34 days uh, instead of 35 days it's not what i'm trying to say here what i'm trying to say is i think you need to look at a a number of different combinations with your entries and your initial stops and your ongoing stop loss rules, et cetera, et cetera, just to see whether there is a way for you to improve the system. Because once you have the system, as Moritz says, you need to do the trades because otherwise your backtest becomes meaningless. You can't even use it for anything if you don't follow the, exactly the same rules as you did in your backtest. So that's super important. I mean, go to the 40 in, 20 out website because there Andrew actually does show a lot of these things. I mean, his time frame is obviously not that different to what you're describing, right? But but he does show, you know, the fact that you have sometimes many trades in a row that just goes against you. And that's where your risk management comes into play so that you can sustain 
a number of these losses. I mean, we all have them, and and uh, you know, a year like this is is one of those years where there's just been a lot of losing trades and false signals. They come, but as Mort said, you need to be prepared for the day when you get the trade, and it just flies. A little bit if you were trading Bitcoin this year, right? Then you might have had a few false starts six months ago. But when it went through whatever level it 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 it, it uh, hit, it just went higher. So uh, taking all the trades, that's definitely rule number one for sure. Good stuff. Thanks very much for that, Vanna. Next one is from Terence. Terence writes, I don't want to sound like I'm flogging a dead horse on the topic of volatility, volatility parity, but I do have a burning question. I'm a big fan of volatility parity and agree with Moritz on the simplicity and the robustness of a simple volatility parity strategy. However, when it comes to using ATR-based sizing, i.e. buying or selling based on a standardized unit of risk, I find it difficult to control the leverage of the overall portfolio as the sum of the weights would not add up to one. I could, of course, set an upper limit on the max exposure per position to ensure the sum of the weights is always below 100%, but that would defeat the purpose of using volatility parity and not a particularly elegant solution. What are your thoughts on this issue? Question, is there a reason to have the sum of percentage weights sum up to 100%? I don't know. There's no reason for me. You know, my, my portfolio is leveraged. I have a certain amount of equity, so that's you know cash, real equity, in the account. But the notional position size that I trade relative to that equity is greater than the equity, right? So I do use leverage, and um, I think this is true for most CTA trend-following traders because you have a relatively large position size already to begin with on short-term interest rate futures and bond futures, etc. Right, where you're going to have much more positions on or much more notional risk on than in net gas, for instance. So um, this is this is the nature of the beast, right? Of an ATR normalized position sizing or a volatility normalized position sizing sizing processes that some of the positions are larger in notional terms uh, than others, but they are the same in ATR or volatility terms. And this is what's important to me. But of course, when you do the sum of the weights uh, in um, volatility terms, then you will find that you know short-term interest rates and some of the currencies and and the bond futures they have a very large weight relative to natural gas and Bitcoin, but in volatility space they are normalized, and that's that is what's important to me. I'm not fussed about any of these weights summing up to 100%. Uh, I control my portfolio leverage by you know finding a level of risk that I'm willing to take. In relation to my equity, right? So I'm risking a certain amount of basis points with each position that I take. And I do that over and over and over again. And that produces a certain, you know, margin requirement that I have over time, which, you know, fluctuates, but it is, say, you know, between 20 and 25%, something like that. And I'm I'm just fine with that. It's dynamic. Yeah. No. yeah. So to expand a little bit on that for you, Terrence, what I might if if in, in that position. I might do the following. So before I joined Don, I had my own CTA and uh, we developed a trend following system back in in around 2006, 2007. And um, I still monitor that system to see how it's doing and so on and so forth. And that's not using the same techniques as we are at Don. So um, it is more closely to what Moritz is doing in terms of sizing of positions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in in that sense, you're right that you don't have, essentially, you're not managing the risk on a portfolio level. You're taking the trades with a certain risk and therefore your risk to stop will fluctuate every single day. But I think that's the first thing I would do actually is to start monitoring the risk to stop and just see what it looks like. Is it 5% if you got stopped out of all your positions? Is it 25% or what's the number? Just to for you to be comfortable with that level. Now, it doesn't say anything about what your potential drawdown could be because you could, as we just discussed in the previous question, you could have five bad trades in a row for a number of those markets, right? So only that you can see through either 
trading it. So the future will show you, give you a good handle on that. Or of course, you can do your backtesting and get a, an idea of that. But one thing I've learned over the years as a kind of a rule of thumb that I think is reasonably accurate, and that is to say that you should expect your drawdown from a model like that to be about five or six times your monthly volatility. So if you have a standard deviation of 5% in your backtested results using your you know your methodology you should expect that at some point you get a 30 40% drawdown that is not uncommon so there is just no way of being absolutely certain about what your risk uh, i.e. drawdown will be and by the way that leads me to another topic i would love to get you guys involved in out there who uh, obviously are, are, are looking at different things besides what we talked about earlier in terms of you know what to do with parameters selection i would love to hear and i think Moritz as well we would love to hear what your thoughts are in terms of what's a good metric for calculating risk adjusted returns how do you because you can use sotino etc etc but actually i'm at the moment um, really interested in finding good ways that also takes into account the fact of the drawdown so in our own little Slack group that we have from from those people who attended our live event last year, there are a couple of suggestions, but I'd love to hear everyone's suggestions about what's a good way of of um, getting a handle on, on the risk-adjusted returns of, say, a trend-following strategy that also looks at not just the volatility of the strategy, but actually also uh, essentially the pain of achieving those results such as the pain-to-gain ratio that we know that Jack Swager really likes, but there are others out there. So anyways, just a, a little thought on that as well. last question for today is from Sebastian who just managed to get it in before we hit record so well done for you and by the way the way to get these uh, questions answered by Moritz and me is to send them to info at toptradersonplug.com then we will uh, bring them up as soon as we can. Last question is from Sebastian and he asks how do you separate yourself <laughs> how do you separate your self-worth from your net worth? Is it a process you have to learn over time or did you never had big issues with losing money with losing money affecting yourself? Thanks for a great podcast. I'm a weekly listener since the time you started the podcast. Well, that's fantastic, by the way, Sebastian, because it has been a long time since uh, TTU started. So thanks for that. But anyways, Moritz, how do you separate your self-worth from your net worth? <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm not sure if I, it's a, it's a fair question. I'm not sure if I agree with uh, how it is phrased. Um, I hope that all of us have a self-worth that is, um, uh, you know, more meaningful than just, of, you know, our trading results, you know, be it family and friends and what you do in the world. I mean, I, I hope at least that is uh, true for me. I want to see myself in that way, that it's not all about trading. Trading is a thing that I do. I do it to make money. I really enjoy doing it, but there's more to life than trading, obviously, right? So I guess the question is more, how do you let the effects and the results of trading affect your emotional stability, your mindset, right? Your your way of being. And And of course, this isn't easy. I think experience is a great teacher here. Uh, you cannot simulate that with a paper trading account. It just doesn't work. I think you have to do it and you have to come to terms with the fact that you will have losing periods, maybe even severe losing periods, long-lasting losing periods. There are a couple of techniques which I have mentioned before on the show that help me tackle these episodes and, and you know handle them well. And... Um, one is to, you know, always remind myself that, you know, there is there is a better period hopefully ahead. There's no guarantee. But I know that, you know, when I am making money hand over fist, I want to remind myself just, you know, stay even keeled. This money may be going away before you know it, right? And it just, you know, goes the other way and you're in a massive drawdown. And sometimes it can be really quick. But I also want to remind myself of the uh, many periods that I had where, you know, I was very fast to at least reduce a drawdown substantially, right? If you're down minus 30 
and you can reduce that to being down minus 15, that already feels good to me. It's still a loss, right? But if you're at minus 30, that is really, really bad. Going back up to minus 15, yeah, you're not yet positive, but still you're kind of like in, in a different risk zone there, right? So you're you're getting back uh, in, in a more balanced way. So I like that. I also don't want to have a look at the dollar numbers all too often. I really want to stay as much as I can in a percentage world and have things normalized. How does my account behave in relation to the notional account size that I trade, in relation to the equity that I trade? Those are percentage numbers. Those are not dollar numbers, right? That kind of like normalizes it for me and it it, it, it has the, the benefit of not than playing with my mind too much. So this is um, this is how I do it. And I also must say that over the years, I've just become much more thick-skinned about these things. 10, 15 years ago, losses have affected me much, much more and much more negatively than they do that today. So today I can really have losing days, even large losing days. And... Um, you wouldn't see a grumpy Moritz down at the dinner table. But 10, 15 years ago, there would have been a grumpy Moritz down at the dinner table. So I'm getting better at that. And this is what we've said before, or many times, Niels, it's also about the journey. This is something that you just get used to, I think. And you know, I know traders out there, and you know them as well, Niels, who are trading substantially greater volatility than you and I. And they're doing it for like, I don't know, 30 years or something like that. And they are really swinging for the fences and they have some massive down days and some massive down month. And, uh, you know, when, when I speak to them and I don't speak too often to them, but I have, you know, I do speak personally to them. They're just, uh, you, would, you wouldn't notice it if they had a massive down day. It's just part of the business. It's, it's you breathe in, you breathe out. If you run a business, because it's really, they consider trading like a business. You're running a trading business. I think this is this is really true. You're running a trading business. There's no business in the world that just, I mean, maybe there are, but most businesses don't just make money every day. You have costs, you pay people, right? Then you have something affecting you. Your business just doesn't run as you expected to run. There's a fewer amount of customers. Your product isn't well received. There's a lawsuit. Yada, yada, yada. There's always volatility. So it's like a business. Don't expect it to make money every day, every month, every year. You will have losing trades. You will have losing periods. And you just accept that and pull the trigger again on the next trade. If you have an edge in your system, over time, it'll show. And this is what keeps you going. Yeah, well said. And I don't really have much to add to that. I think, Sebastian, I think Morris has said um, all that needs to be said about this. It is definitely a journey. I will say, and just being very uh, raw about these facts, that even after more than three decades of doing this, I still don't feel great when we're in a big drawdown. I, I have to say, I don't feel great about it. And I will remind Moritz... <laughs> about the conversation we had on the podcast, I don't remember when it was, like a year ago or something like that, where we all had just a crap week. We lost like 10% from the bonds or whatever it was. And you can hear it in our voice. I mean, you really can, that that was not one of the best weeks we had in, in our recent history. So I think as much as we want to say that we get better at it, I think we also want to say we're really human about it and we're very humble about what markets can do to us, right? Of course, it, you know, we're not robots. It, it doesn't go away completely. You don't get it down to like 0%. Uh, but it's the it's small improvements, there, right? So why, how yeah. do you handle it? Yeah. And how do you put it in perspective? Yeah. That makes the difference. Yeah. And and I will say that I think it's, as, as, as Mart said earlier, it is a journey. And I do think you make these small improvements over time, but it doesn't mean you can't get knocked off course from time to time where you just think that, that really did hurt. So, and I think a lot of the people listening to our conversations, um, I'm sure, have had these experiences. But, but as as you also said, Moritz, there are people, and and certainly I know that from from our firm. I mean, uh, with with someone like Bill Don, when when he was in in the office uh, every day, you really could not tell whether it was an up ten percent day or a down ten percent day. There's just no emotional impact. So. 
the thing about treating it as a business and it's a journey that's bumpy, absolutely, that's that's the way to look at it. But it also makes it exciting and um, unpredictable. So anyway, speaking about exciting and unpredictable, we have the numbers for uh, where we are performance-wise and then we'll get to our new segment about what stood out to us in terms of new content that we came across this week. Anyways, it has been a good month so far for uh, the Beta 50 index up two and three quarters percent, now up almost one percent for the year, so back in the black. The SockGen CT index, uh, although it's a good month, up on a one and a half percent almost in November, it's still down two percent or so for the um, year. Trend index, up one and a quarter ish and down only about 20 basis points now for the year so coming back the short-term guys doing well this month as well up 58 basis points up 2.4 percent for the year whilst the uh, multi-alternative risk premier index is down almost a percent again in november down 15.6 percent for the year so um that road downwards continues unfortunately for those strategies as i may not have said so far today, if you want to help us out, you could leave a rating and review in iTunes. They really do help. Or just share the content. That's really all we ask for that um, is so important. Now, Moritz, I'm a little bit unprepared for this next question myself, I have to admit, because I, right now I'm kind of blanking on which podcast I listened to this week. So I'm going to let you go first if there's anything that stood out to you uh, in terms of content while I'm struggling to come up with what I've been mm-hmm. listening to this week. Yeah, that that's fine. I um I must admit I only listened to two podcasts this week. It's been a busy week. But you know, everything in the last couple of weeks and and also this week was about Bitcoin, right? So my my interest right now is uh, is really in in Bitcoin. There's a podcast called What Bitcoin Did and uh there was one show where they where he uh, interviewed the Winklevoss twins, the Winklevoss twins uh, mm-hmm. who run Gemini, and then there has been another podcast, another show, where they had an interview with Mike Novogratz and uh, Dan Moorhead, and obviously, you know, they're all super Bitcoin bulls, so uh, no, no question what their views were, right? But they're they're coming from different angles as to you know why they think it is a valuable asset. What makes it an asset in the first place? Uh, what narrative they prefer, whether that's digital gold or a payment system, and you know what could really be happening to um, to the to the price of Bitcoin and the institutional adoption that may be um, on the doorstep, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not sure if all of that is going to play out as they think it will, because you know if it does, then you know they're all saying you know two to three years from now we're at five hundred thousand. Well, that's a big, big, big number, but it's it's interesting to hear those different perspectives. So you bring up Bitcoin, and I know you you obviously know a lot more about Bitcoin than I do, and 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 so on and so forth. But since you mention it, I actually now remember that I did listen to a podcast this week as well on the topic of Bitcoin. Would you believe it or not? But it happened just to be on the Investors Podcast, and I like those guys. So uh, Preston has a new show, a new weekly show on on crypto. So I, I actually just listened to that. It was very educational for me because it was kind of, you know, what is Bitcoin, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But here's a question, and I know this, is, this could get me into trouble, um, but I want to ask it to you anyways, um, because I really don't mean anything... I, I don't want it to sound like that I have a an agenda here. I don't. I'm completely neutral on this. However, when you see the Bitcoin crowd, Moritz, and you're, I would say you're part of it, but I'm not putting you in the same boxes as the people that I'm going to refer to now. But you see the people who have adopted Bitcoin the last few years, and we know a lot of them ourselves. And um, as you say, they're very vocal about it. They're very bullish about it. But they also have big audiences, right? So a lot of people follow them. And this is where I'm a little bit in conflict. Because when you take people with hundreds of thousands of followers and they keep on going, saying, buy Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin, it's going to 100,000, 280,000. To me, that is a little bit of a pump and dump 
scheme. I don't really see the difference. And I, the reason that I bring that up is because in Jack Swagger's last book, there was a guy who made a lot of money from a pump and dump scheme. Now, he wasn't doing the pumping and dumping. There were other people doing it. He just happened to make a lot of money on that trade. So I think personally, there's a little bit of a difference when you go out and you kind of pump your narrative in that direction, knowing that you have a large audience, but you do it in a small market like Bitcoin, compared to if you were just going out and saying, oh, I'm really super bullish treasuries, because you're not going to move the market by saying you're really bullish treasuries. But when you have hundreds of thousands of people following this group of, of content creators that are so one way, and even if they truly believe it, uh, I'm not saying they don't, and of course they, they own the, the, the something like that. I just think you have to be super careful with a small market like Bitcoin because you are impacting the price. You are manipulating the price, in my opinion. That's my question, and I know it's a little bit controversial. Not to you, but just generally speaking. Yeah, of course, there's a lot of uh, a lot of noise around it, and it's um, the more the price goes up, the more attention it gets, and I think that's natural. I I don't think that any of the people that you're listening to on the big podcasts, or like you know, say the Novogratzes of the world, or the Winklevoss twins, etc., I don't think they're in the business of dumping. I think they're in the business of no. Collecting Bitcoin and putting it into ice cold deep storage and hodling it forever, right? So if it goes up, of course they benefit, but I don't think they're doing this pump and dump type of thing uh, scheme where they pump it up only to sell it to the to the next fool, right? And and then wait for the price to uh, to crash and um, and buy. Well, what's it back. the point, Moritz, in having Bitcoin if you're not going to sell it at some point and and take the profit, right? It is, really it is an asset. It's, it's a value container. It is a storehold of wealth, right? It's um, you have a lot of people that put money into, say, gold, right? They're not incentivized. They're not planning on selling their gold. They have it as a storehold of wealth because they know it, you know, deflates lesser than or it loses less money, less purchasing power than a fiat currency, and that is true, right? So it's kind of like this asset container, and I really do like the narrative of. Bitcoin being digital gold, it is a better form of gold. When you look about, when you, when you think about the properties of gold, right? It's very difficult to move gold from A to B. You know, I I cannot. You know, I would have to drive to Zouk and bring you a bar of gold, but then you have to smelter it and you know do something with it. It's it takes time. It's really heavy, right? It's it's not as fungible. You know, Bitcoin's electronic. Everything's on the blockchain. Um, and uh, you know what? It you know it is disinflationary. There's only going to be 21 million of these coins. Never a single one more. Actually, that's a number that will never be reached because you know it's asymptotically getting to that point, right? But around the year 2100, we will be uh, getting close to like you know the 21 million mark. Um, but gold. You know, the production of gold is very bad for the environment. Like all the chemicals are thrown at the thing, right, in order to get it out of the earth crust. And it does inflate. You know, people tend to forget about that. But, the, you know, the, the stock of gold per year increases by about 2% or 1.7 or 1.8% or something like that on average per year. Bitcoin's the opposite. It is a, a really cool narrative that I th think is, has some appeal and I also think that this time around, in contrast to what we saw in December of 2017, when Bitcoin was getting close, or when Bitcoin was trading at 20,000, it is, of course, retail is in there, right? Retail is always in there. But in 2017, it's only been retail. I don't think that any of the, say, you know, family offices or some of the more professional type of traders slash investors had too much of an exposure to Bitcoin in the run-up of 2017. That was that was pure retail. But clearly this has changed. There's now PayPal, there's Stripe, there's MicroStrategy, right? The integration of Bitcoin into the financial system continues to happen and it has gone a long way from 2017 to where we are today. So high net worth individuals, family offices, etc. They are corporates. They are in that in that asset right now. It's not only just retail. 
And take my word for it, there are quite a number of large institutional players right now preparing for allocating to Bitcoin because they can no longer sit on the sidelines and say, I'm not touching it. But to me, that's part of the hype. All that narrative, right? All the people saying, oh yeah, but Microsoft, they're going to take 1%, uh, Apple's going to take 1%, Amazon's going to take 1% and put the money. I mean, I mean, again, I'm kind of open about it, right? In a sense, it's to me, it's kind of one market like any other market mm -hmm. in some ways, right? But on the other hand, I also would would say that, and no, I'm not, get, I'm not going to get popular among the Bitcoin crowd for saying it, but to me, it's, It's nothing. It's kind of a Ponzi scheme that only gets more and more valuable because there are fewer of them. And there was a tweet this week, not uh, maybe yesterday or the day before, showing how few people were controlling or holding uh, most of Bitcoin's outstanding, whatever number it is, right? So it's kind of, in a sense, to me, controlled by few people. It's and and again, I don't actually know the details here, but from listening to Preston's conversation with, and I forget unfortunately his name was very knowledgeable about it. Um, he, they talked about, and now I'm really getting into deep water. They talk about uh, something like full notes, but and 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 how that changed in order to um, increase the volume of Bitcoin. Something had to change in order to increase that a few years back. And on one hand, I hear that people saying, oh, yeah, but Bitcoin, it's decentralized. You can't control it. But on the other hand, I hear, if I understood correctly, yeah, but there are a few groups of people, there are a few people, maybe the original nature of, of, of this uh, protocol that got together and dis decided that something in the protocol changed in order to allow for more volume, right? So to me, it's not completely impossible to change Bitcoin And that may be wrong, that may be right, but that's how I understand it. So I'm really, I have very mixed emotions uh, about mm -hmm. an asset like that because, I mean, you could have decided to use um, a limited edition of Lego, of Lego and say, this is now really valuable and there's not going to be any more of these and we're going to keep it as a store of value. I, I, Bitcoin to me, it's, it, has no, it has no real value. I think there's something different, you know, until, you know, at some point somebody decides to produce the next Lego block. With Bitcoin, you would have to get, you know, kind of like um, the majority of the hash power needs to agree on that change to occur. And so this is, yes, there can be an attack on Bitcoin. I, I don't want to say the probability is yeah. zero, right? It's just the, the amount of hashing power that is, you know, underpinning that protocol is now so large that it would take a massive A, a massive effort and a lot of money to really attack yeah. that protocol. So, but yeah, I mean, the risk is not zero. I, I, look, I, I want to be, I am not in the, in the camp of running out there in the front of my house with a Bitcoin flag and a Bitcoin mask and a Bitcoin t-shirt and screaming Bitcoin all day long. That, that's not me, <laughs> right? I'm more like you. Yeah, it's, 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 it's an asset. I can come around to that digital gold narrative fine that works for me other people see other things in it um, everybody's a little bit different but really what it is to me and I've said that before is it is a risk worth taking as a trade yeah sure because sure. I think it is a lopsided a lopsided risk return profile it's like an option like a call option payout possibility you know it, it may go it may not pay out right it may go down fine but it does have that asymmetry built into it without me paying an option premium to get that exposure, right? There is, maybe it does go to 500,000, maybe it does not, maybe it goes to a million, maybe it goes to 100,000. I don't know. I really do not know. I'm, I'm not in the business of making any forecast. Uh, but it could, and it could also go to zero, right? But I can control my risk through position sizing of that exposure. I don't have all of my assets and all of my money in Bitcoin, right? But I have a, you know, a, it's become larger recently, but I, you know, I do have an exposure to the thing. And, um, and I think it is, it is a, it is a great bet. So everybody needs to make up their own mind. I think that's a fair argument. I mean, it's a market like anything else. And, and, and of course, you're absolutely right. I mean, especially if people keep talking about it um, with large groups of following that, that it's going to go up, um, then more and more people will end up buying it. So that's perfectly fine. What I found interesting was actually that in the last couple of weeks, I've heard Ray Dalio, 
I've heard Jim Rogers, by the way, on a, on a, he had a very good conversation on the Grant Williams podcast recently, uh, where they also talked about Bitcoin. And another guy that I follow a little bit on the side uh, called Martin Armstrong, just because he, he used to do some cycle work, or he still does, but he, I guess he's changed a bit. But anyways, all three of them said that they fear that at some point, and actually we heard Julian Brickton talk about that um, with us more it's when we did the Global Macro interview, they all fear that as Bitcoin becomes maybe too valuable in whatever, however we define that, that governments are just going to outlaw it and ban it. Um, like China has done. I think other countries like Abu Dhabi has done as well and things like that. So I just think it's kind of interesting and, and to... Is, and and I, yeah. I don't... This is really where I would... It can't happen, right? But I don't think it will happen. And think about it that way. I think Bitcoin is going to be integrated into the financial system. If If you think that you should be in Bitcoin because of secrecy and you're doing dirty tricks with it and you're not going to be seen then I think you're backing the wrong horse. I think, you know, Bitcoin, as you know, is not anonymous, it's pseudonymous, and there are techniques, you know, to kind of like light it up. Everything is on the blockchain forever, right? So I don't think this is a place to hide. Um, you will be taxed on it. In the US, you have to declare it on your tax statement, right? So all of that is coming. But why would a government outlaw it, knowing that if they did that, it's a global market. That's the internet, right? The Bitcoin goes to a country where it's still accepted. You know, it, it leaves your country, it goes to another country, and there's the business going to be built around it. But why not just accept it in the same way that governments accept and tax the possession of gold? Gold is not the funnily printed colored paper that you pay your, you know, groceries with. You're using your Swiss francs for that, and I'm using my euros, right? But you can have gold. Why, why wouldn't governments allow the possession of Bitcoin in the same way they allow you to possess gold, silver, platinum, palladium. Just this one is in digital form. And if it increases well, in value, you're making a gain on it, then you tax it when you sell it. And that's it. I don't think it will ever be a competition to the monetary system because, you know, the governments and the central banks, they're not going to surrender that privilege, right? And they will come up with their own digital currency and their own protocols where they can, you know, inflate the monetary supply and the monetary base or whatever it is that they want to do with that thing. And they will say, here's the digital euro and your salary, your, you know, people that work at BMW, your salary is paid in that currency. That is our legal tender. It's not Bitcoin. Bitcoin is just an asset. You can buy it. I think you almost gave the answer I would give in terms of why I think it might get banned. And that is exactly why, because they don't want competition when they come out with their own digital currency. It's, it's similar to to right now, you can't go out and get another US dollar. There is only one US dollar, right? There's no competition to the US dollar. And so I don't think they want a co competition to their currencies when they do come. And therefore, I think Bitcoin and all the other stuff, this is my guess. Um, could very well come under attack from them. And and as Jim Rogers, uh, to quote him, said, I mean, you could just say that to have Bitcoin or to even trying to pay with it is treason. And then he didn't think that a lot of people would keep their Bitcoins, right? So, I mean, I'm not saying that they that's what they're going to do, but, but I do think it's interesting when you hear people like Jim Rogers, Ray Dalio and all of that. I mean, they do often have the finger on the pulse, even though I'm sure you can find many other people saying the exact opposite. But anyways, um, I didn't really even mean to go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole today, but since we had a little bit of spare time, it, w it was uh, interesting and, and educational for me since uh, you know a lot more about this uh, than I do. So on that note, Moritz, anything else you want to bring up in this very wide-ranging conversation today? No, no, I think we're good. That was fun. It was fun indeed. And um, as uh, as Moritz alluded to uh, earlier today, we will have Jerry back soon. Sometime in December, he will come and join us and we're going to talk all things trend following, open equity, closed equity, lots of good stuff when he joins. We very much look forward to that. And maybe we'll find some other guests to uh, come along in the next few weeks as well. Do send your questions to info at toptradersonplug.com. Do 
bring up these topics that we talked about, risk-adjusted returns, what's a good metrics for that, how do you decide on parameters. Let's have some debate about that. Um, you can send it uh, or do it uh, via Twitter. I'm sure you know what our handles are. In the meantime, from Moitz and me, thank you so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, stay healthy and be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.